Thank you. I have a tendency of breaking these things. All our sound guys at the church mark them all up with red tape for areas I'm not supposed to touch. So, sorry. Oopsie. So here we go. Let's see if I can work this whole thing out. We're going to go high. Does this tighten at all, Steve, or is it just, am I cursed? I'm going to have to just hold it up. Let's see here what happens. Whew. All right. Yeah, I'll take a second one. Sorry, I'm breaking everything around here. Does yours have the load-bearing OSHA qualifications? Oh, two together, huh? Does this one hold weight? Let's see. Oh, man. See, that's what happens when you start preaching with all kinds of different stuff. This is like Lloyd-Jones back in the day right here with a huge pulpit. This is awesome. Wow. Let me do this. Now I feel safe. Well, welcome. Good to see you guys again. Always consider you guys family, and it's a joy to be with you guys. A couple... Friends are here with me today and were giving me a hard time for not preaching at our church. Last night, uh, the other pastor, Tim, he's out of town on vacation for the first time in a century. And uh, I couldn't preach because my girls had a recital and just had a full day of stuff and all kinds of other things going on. So I couldn't preach. So Tab came over last night and preached, but the deal was I have to come preach here. So I told him it would be a joy. I always love seeing you guys. And so... We'll be in the letter of Philemon tonight, or this morning, letter of Philemon, right after the book of Titus. But let me open in prayer. Oh, Father, we come before you rejoicing that we could sing songs to you, that the words about you and what you have done in the work of your Son not only makes us new, but gives us hope to look ahead. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and glorify the Son, that you would lift him up and shine the light on him so that our hearts would see him and rejoice and enjoy the greatness of the glory of God. And yet, Father, we come this morning confessing we are weak, that we often limp into the worship service after a week in the world and we simultaneously dependent on you, and yet look ahead to that great day when we will no longer limp along by faith, but will stand boldly by sight. And so now would you help us to understand a bit better your love, and that for those who have been loved by you, how we can rightfully love our neighbor. So through this small in length letter, but rich and bold in application. Would you help us now come under the great weight and goodness of your word, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So I got to preach uh, the letter of Philemon. It's a little two-sermon series. Got to preach it a couple times at a couple different churches now, and I will tell you, uh, I was telling Marshall a little bit ago, As I prepped last night and this morning, I became wide aware once again 
that as I preach this, I'm preaching once again to myself. That uh, I haven't conquered what this sermon talks about. I am still in need of the Spirit's work day in and day out. And it's a, it's a really simple message, a really simple book in one sense. And yet the letter of Philemon calls for a weighty, weighty obedience to those who believe in the gospel. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., he ended up in a jail cell in Birmingham, and he was leading a nonviolent resistance against racism. Now, while he was in jail there, he penned a powerful letter. Maybe you have read it. It's in book form now called Letters from Birmingham Jail. But then it was printed in the newspaper, and it drastically changed the tone of racism in the South. One part of that letter describes the counterculture of the church and what Christ's bride is called to be in the world. He writes this. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven And had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. And then you can hear the tone change in his letter. He says, things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. See, Martin Luther King, he was saddened by the lack of the voice his brothers and sisters in Christ had for him and the family of believers that were struggling under the oppression of racism. The church, God's own adopted family, seemed to be silent and indifferent in the midst of suffering of their own brothers and sisters. Well, this morning we're going to read another letter from another jail cell calling for the family of God to rise above the social barriers of society. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul as he sits in a jail cell himself. And due to an unexpected visitor, Paul becomes aware of an injustice happening in one of his own local churches that he helped to train up a leader and plant. So my hope, as I prayed last night and prayed this morning for us, is that we will not respond ourselves with silent indifference to the injustices going on to our brothers and sisters in the church or in our city. So if you're not there yet, open up to Philemon and we'll start working through the first half of the letter this morning. Now Paul opens this letter unlike most of his other letters. He usually opens by flexing his apostolic authority, right? An an apostle was one who has seen the risen Christ who has been sent by the risen Christ with the good news of a heavenly message that can convert other people. But rather than flex his muscles here, he opens up, as he writes to Philemon, 
by calling himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. A prisoner for Christ Jesus, which is in one sense very literal because he is in a prison. But what we will also see is he is identifying himself with Philemon's slave named Onesimus, who in a sense was also a prisoner. We find rather quickly that Paul is writing to Philemon and the church that meets in his house. If you look at verse 2, it says, To Philemon, at the end of verse 1 and then verse 2, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and then he names some other folks, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Then in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives his customary greeting of love and gratitude. But it's best summarized in verse 7 when Paul writes, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You see, before Paul gets to his critique of the situation, which we will hear more about going on in this little church that meets in Philemon's house, he makes sure that Philemon knows he is considered a brother, a family member that has been adopted by God himself. He encourages that, that he's, been enjoy, he's enjoyed being loved by him, but what follows helps us understand the reason Paul's writing this little and yet weighty letter. You see, according to verse 10, Paul's appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, a slave in the church that meets in Philemon's house, most likely Philemon's own slave. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You see, Paul's using very affectionate family language throughout this whole letter. In the letter, he calls Timothy his brother. He calls Philemon his brother. He says he's the father to Onesimus, and Onesimus is his son. And by using this very affectionate family-type language, he is addressing his brother Philemon about this man Onesimus who came to him while imprisoned, And during that time, we learn that Onesimus put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself became a family member in the great family of God. Now, we know that Philemon is more than likely a wealthy member of the Roman Empire. Usually in those days, historical documents basically show that anyone who would host a church in their house were the most wealthy of the community, had a home that could actually host enough people. Now, more than likely, it wasn't this big of a church. More than likely, it's 12, 15, 20 people, but it was still a local church. Now, Onesimus, I want you to imagine with me for a second, is hearing the gospel week after week after week as this community of believers comes into Philemon's house, and he's starting to wrestle with all these truths he's hearing from Philemon and these family members of God and yet picking up on some inconsistencies in what he's experiencing. As he continues to hear the gospel, he hears things like there's this new family of God that has been redeemed from all of their past, present, and future sins and has been made one with Christ. 
He hears of this new kingdom that does not function the way the Roman Empire functions. He's hearing about a king who did not win by force, but through weakness and through humility. He is hearing of how this new kingdom family loves their enemies rather than gets even. And he probably kept hearing this new kingdom idea that certain people of certain class or color are not loved less or more according to their class or color. He finds out that all are actually one in the person of Christ. As Paul would have taught elsewhere in Galatians 3.28 about our identity in Christ, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now imagine being Onesimus, sitting there hearing truths like this about this new kingdom family that doesn't acknowledge class or color, And welcomes all in Christ. I imagine day after day of serving all these new kingdom family members as they came ushering in and and rushing in for this worship service and gathering together. His affections probably were pricked. As he started to say, what if it's true? What if in Christ I was no longer identified as a slave, but as a son and as a brother. And yet he looks over here and they're telling him to clean up the house and to go take care of this and to go do this other thing. And and he sees that there is an inconsistency, that the message doesn't quite match the actions and the life. Well, this contradiction of hearing about this freedom while he is still a slave causes him to go elsewhere right he packs up his bags and he travels a hundred miles to go see Paul in prison now in that day according to Roman law a slave who would run away from his master the just penalty was death and slavery was a lot different in that day more than likely Onesimus had sold himself into slavery to pay a debt or something in that regard although that wasn't always the case but to leave and travel a hundred miles shows that Onesimus sees that this gospel message has a ton of hope in it and he needs to figure out is it true or not because all the people who believe it in the church don't seem to really believe it and so he travels a hundred miles And my guess is he starts to explain this tension to Paul. How is it that these people could have been adopted into the family of God and yet still treat me as a slave? How is it they they can say they're this new kingdom family and yet still live according to the customs of the Roman Empire? Then he began caring for Paul's needs as we see in the letter. We'll see it in a little bit. And I just imagine this mutual love and care start to take place. He's caring for Paul and his imprisonment, all of his needs, and at the same time, Paul's teaching him doctrine and answering all of his questions about all these inconsistencies he's been seeing. And I don't know when, but sometime during that time he spent with Paul, he puts his trust in Jesus. 
Paul declares the gospel message he had already been hearing. And he puts his trust in Jesus. After this sweet season Paul had with Onesimus, he sends him back to Philemon carrying this very letter we will start working through. He starts carrying this letter with him and I imagine the trek back. What's the punishment going to be for me running away? Is he going to treat me the way Paul says I should be treated? And it also bears witness, I think, to us, the cost of gospel reconciliation. A lot of times when we're offended or we're hurt, we say, we're not going to deal with that. We're we're just going to stay, right? Paul could have said, oh, just find a local church here by the place I'm imprisoned where you'll be comfortable and don't worry about all that reconciliation stuff. But the weight here is Paul saying, if you have been reconciled to the God of all creation, you're called to work it out with the person that's sinful just like you. And so I am sending you back to Philemon. You're going to work this out. Can you imagine the weight for Onesimus? And in those days, the messenger couldn't break the seal. So he's walking 100 miles with this letter. And I imagine him thinking, What's Paul going to say? How's he going to take this? Or I mean Philemon. What's Philemon going to say? And how's he going to take this? And, and what's this going to... There is weight to this letter. And as a son to Paul, he's sending him back. Despite your plight as a slave, it's time to go back. Because the gospel demands weighty obedience. Well, in those days also, as the messenger would bring the letter back, it was never read beforehand. It was, the seals would be cut or broken as it would be read publicly in the local church for the first time. And more than likely, Philemon is the church planter and the one who hosts this church and is one of the pastors there. I imagine he was the one to read it. Now I want you to imagine for a minute then, as the church comes gathering again, Onesimus has been gone, Philemon has probably shared his struggles and frustrations about how his slave had ran away and what he's going to do with him. And as everyone starts walking in, there's Onesimus sitting in the corner with his head down, knowing that all of this is up to Philemon now. And so Philemon, in the midst of his frustration, stands up on a morning like this, tears the seals opens up the parchment, and starts to read. All eyes on Philemon. Now I want you to imagine with me as Philemon's reading this, that you are here, present with this church, and hearing this for the first time. Philemon stands up and reads verses 8 through 16. He actually read the whole letter, but we'll just pretend for now. Verses 8 through 16. He says, accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Then he takes a quick break here and he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. In the Greek, the original language there, Paul's playing on words, that that word Onesimus is the same exact word as useful. 
So he was once useless, now he's Onesimus to you. He's his true self because he's been converted. He's in Christ. He is who he was meant to be to you. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And then listen to this. No longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. All eyes are locked on Philemon. All right, what's, what's he going to do? All right, Onesimus is sitting there listening. There's probably other slaves in the household. And then there's all these other slave owners thinking, uh-oh, half of my work is done because of my slave. If Philemon chooses to free him and count him as a brother and no longer as a slave, that means we probably have to follow suit. All the slaves are getting a little giddy, right? Kind of twitching like freedom. Freedom. This gospel message we've been hearing is about to have its necessary consequences if Philemon listens to Paul. You see, the gospel demands and motivates weighty obedience and it is the apostle paul writing this he's an apostle so he has the right as he said to command philemon to obey right he has the right to do that but this letter shows the difference in the way the family of god treats one another even if we have the right to command at times it's not the best way. Right? Where the world deals with us using our authority to get what we think we deserve. Christianity says that we come under one another and we appeal for love's sake. Right? In the Roman Empire and in the world today, you do everything that you want to do for your own good. Even in those days where it was right to have a slave, we see the problem was the church continued to believe that up and against the authority of God. And yet Paul's way of dealing with it isn't commanding, but for love's sake appealing. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, right? Not optional. Required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Christian family loves and appeals and doesn't demand. See, in this new kingdom, we let love be our ethic rather than power and authority. And the truth is, this is otherworldly if you consider it. It's not of our normal ethic. It has come from heaven and it has came down to us and says, this is the way that we now deal with one another. The truth is, if we believed this and applied it, 
it would be breathtaking. <laughs> the, the unity and love we would have for one another would be astonishing. But too often we let the world guide our ethic rather than the love of God. So let me just sum up this first part of Philemon for you. I'll give you what the main issue is here. Philemon let Onesimus' identity as a slave become a barrier that kept him from treating him as a brother. Here, I'll say it again. Philemon had let Onesimus' identity as a slave become a barrier that kept him from treating Onesimus as a brother, as a family member. Now, as we consider that, what about you? What barriers keep you from treating one another like family? For some of you, it may be economics. Maybe you have little to no money and you look at those who God has gifted or given his grace to and provided a lot of money to and you look up and say, oh, they're rich. And and God said all these things about we need to hate those who have money because the root of evil is all money. But God never really said hate those that have a lot of money. And so we, we judge those who are wealthier than us and think that, you know, we, we just can't fellowship with them because they wouldn't understand our struggles. Or you flip that in the other way. Maybe you're in here and you have a lot of money. And you're thinking, man, those people on the street asking for money, all those homeless people, like, I, I, I give them the $2 when I drive by. But the truth is, inside, man, I know if they would just get a job and work hard the way I worked hard, They would have what I had. And we create these barriers economically. For others of you, it might be skin color. You grew up with the same kind of people in your neighborhood, and when you walk by a person on the street that looks a little bit different than you, you start to shriek or walk the extra way around because you're a little nervous that what you see on the news is true of all people. Or you know that the way that the government is led by predominantly a certain skin color and so I'm not submitting to them because they're a bit different than me. Whatever it is, we can sometimes let skin color become an obstacle or a barrier to loving one another. And hypocritically and yet probably more predominant in the church is that we let our sin become a barrier to the way we treat one another. We might look at someone and say, God may forgive you. He may have washed you clean by the grace and goodness of giving his son, but for me, I just can't forgive that sin. I'm not gonna welcome you into my house and fellowship with you because that was ugly and hurtful. Go enjoy your fellowship with God and he forgives you, but me, I just ah, can't go there. See, maybe we need to stop entertaining for a bit these grand visions of crossing the seas and becoming these great missionaries and reaching all these lost nations and doing all these things if we can't cross our neighbor's boundary marker and love him or her for who she is. Maybe we should stop entertaining all these grand visions of creating these new ministries to reach all these different people when I guarantee there's some of you in this room who are frustrated at people on the other side of the room. 
And if there is no unity between you and you cannot love the way you have first been loved, then all you're doing is making Jesus a liar. His love of God was perfect despite all of his circumstances. And he's calling us to love one another with this brotherly love, to cross these barriers and boundaries. The most radical thing we can do, all these books coming out about radical Christianity, I dare you to know your neighbor. I challenge you to love and forgive your brother and sister in this room over and over. Because the world will know you're Jesus' disciples. Not by how much money you give to travel across the world and do all these cool things. As good as those are and important. But by your love for one another. The next question then becomes. Like Paul and Martin Luther King Jr. Will we speak up and take action when our brothers and sisters need us most? Or will we continue in silent indifference? You see, the truth of the matter is that it's a lot more simple than we often think. You don't have to start a new program or start a new ministry to accomplish these things. What you need is love, time, and a space. What I mean is a real love that has meat on its bones that cannot keep silent invites a neighbor into our house, confesses our ignorance, and says, man, I don't really know you. I don't know what you've been through. Can you tell me what your life is like? It's willing to give a space to be known and to know others. A chance to love. A chance to confess, listen, I have these boundaries against you and they're wrong. And so as we eat this meal together, We're going to work this out. You see, that's what Onesimus needed. He was in a place that loved doctrine, preached the gospel. And yet there was this massive inconsistency. He needed someone to listen and to love him. Paul summarizes in a similar letter that often people tie together with Philemon. uh, In Colossians 3. 9 through 14, he says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so we're, we're getting back to the identity again. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you have been found in him. That's your identity. But how does it work out? Starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And listen how radical this sounds. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
goodness. As we think about it, it's messy. You enter into someone's life and you let them enter into yours and you show kindness, you're going to be rejected at times. As you show compassion, there's going to be times you are up against pride. And vice versa, people are going to show us those things and we're going to react wrongly. But Paul is saying to do these things continually. And above all, love. And that will bind all things together. But as we're probably all aware of, the problem is we forget how deeply we are loved. Right? We often function out of our own strength, function out of these ethics to live this way, and we do it over and over, and there's times where we're hurt so bad we just can't imagine doing it again. Right? I've shown that guy kindness and compassion over and over, and he continues to just be Harsh. How can I continue? Well, to put on such love and compassion and kindness is to first remember the family that we have been purchased into. And what I mean is not us as adopted sons and daughters, but the family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They sat in council with one another before they even created the world. Before it was spoken into being, they they sat around and, and they came up with a plan knowing that after they created us, we would sin against them and, and all of God's righteous commands. And ever before, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the perfect family of God, was the greatest barrier to love that has ever existed. The barrier was the the great dilemma of how a holy and sinless God could love a sinful people and still be just. How How could a God who is holy not just forgive, but also be just? I mean, as we think through that, we think, you know, it'd be great for God just to love and forgive everybody. Right? Why, Why does justice have to play? Let him just forgive us all. Alright, anyone in here who has kids, if your kid was brutally dealt with by someone else in a way that brought lasting scars forever, would you just want to forgive them or does justice seem like an okay thing? And so we have this God who, who really is willing to love, but as he looks down into creation, he's faced with this dilemma of injustice. Not only that, the barrier of sin itself is first and foremost against him. Right? All sins are against God. And so how can a loving and a just God get past the barrier that his own created people caused with their own sin and treason against him? That's the dilemma. John Flavel, this 16th century pastor and theologian, he takes us into this great council, into the Trinity, before the creation of the world, and he paints the conversation like this. The father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, Or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? 
the son replies, Oh, my father, such is my love to pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their debts that I may see what they owe. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them whatsoever. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all of their debt. The father responds, but my son, if you undertake it for them, thou must reckon to pay every last cent. Expect no reduction. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son replies, I am content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I'm able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And so we see in the gospel the good news of Jesus is that he took on a body with the sole purpose of having it crushed. He came to earth. He crossed the barrier from heaven all the way to earth, knowing that all his people wouldn't even recognize him, but would send him to a cross. And he crossed this grand barrier, driven and motivated by love. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, gives us a picture of how far the king of kings stooped to come down to us and cross these barriers. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves. So first there's a command, we must not skip, right? This is the way we're to think. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From the glories and comforts of heaven to the most humiliating and shameful place a man can go, so our Savior went. And for the sake of love, Jesus did not cling on to his own glory, but instead took on a body for the whole purpose of being crushed, and love alone was the motivation, but justice itself was paid as he endured all of our sins in his own body. All of our sins of treating one another as indifferent and without compassion and without love, he paid for all of those sins and likewise counted us righteous in his sight. He looks at us as if we had always loved the way he loved. And if Jesus' love is so great that he's willing to take all the sins of his people, sins that were against him personally upon his own body, if he's willing to go that far, is it too much to ask Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother? Is that too much? Is the cultural barrier of slavery too costly? Or would the good news of the gospel drive Philemon to love Onesimus as a brother rather than use him as a slave? 
What about you? Is this barrier-crossing love of God enough for you to forgive, to love, and to speak up? Or will you continue in silent indifference? You see, the gospel not only forgives us and makes us a part of God's family, it's supposed to make us crawl out of our skin when people don't know the God who offers such forgiveness. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable when we see people walking around and our own neighbors and our own family and our own friends not walking in the truth of the gospel. If you love God, if you believe the gospel, you will naturally love others. Not perfectly. Right? We confess when we fell and then we move on again. But the natural result of people who have been loved by God is that they love others. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 19. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Right? So he's given this great gospel reality that those who believe the gospel, let the love of Christ control them. But listen what he says next. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We look out into the world and no one is mere mortal, as C.S. Lewis said. They're all immortal. They're going to one place or the other forever. They either know and love God or they are hostile to him. But as we walk in this world now, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right? so if, if we have been loved by God and believe in him, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And listen to this phrase. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul, of course, is talking about himself first in this letter, but as he writes to the Corinthians, he's making something very clear. We are to cross these boundaries that keep us from loving people, and God is not sitting there in heaven just kind of zapping people to belief. He's given people a message to declare And no, we're not responsible for changing their hearts, but we are responsible for crossing these boundaries and telling about this message of love. Those that have experienced the love of God are now under His control and His sending to go declare this message, this barrier-crushing love of God. And notice who God, in all of His infinite wisdom, sends. This always... It blows me away. It's striking. But he uses forgiven sinners, (laughs) those who are still messing up at all this, to go tell of his love. 
I mean, it might sound like a total plan B on God's part, but who better to declare the love of God than those who have received the love of God? You see, Grace Church, God has crossed some major barriers to love you and to love me. The question is, will you receive his love? And will that be enough to cause you to go across the street, to love your coworker, to love fellow students, and give them the same love you have received? And God forbid we become a people that go and share this gospel so boldly and humbly and excited to our neighbors and friends and co-workers and yet have disunity in the body. So let it start here. Let us be a people who cross even this little aisle to say, I'm sorry for the way I hurt you. Cross this side to show compassion and kindness. And let us be a people so clothed in the love of our God that we cannot be silent and we are willing to cross any barrier necessary to make known the love of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we delight in the grand reality that you have loved us. God, we thank you that not only did you love us perfectly in the work of sending your son to die to forgive us and make right all of the injustices that our own sin and barriers have caused. But you have given us the Holy Spirit, the one who dwells in us, who communicates the love of God to us so that we can communicate it to one another. Oh God, I pray for this church here this morning, for Grace Church, that you would work in them even a work of repentance this morning where necessary. That you would create compassion and kindness where it is needed. And God, because of their love for one another here, the world would know that they are your disciples. Oh God, let us be aware of our barriers. We, we create so many out of hurt and out of pride. Would you cause those to be crushed and torn down so that love would reign rather than hurt and sin. Oh God, we thank you that there is a day coming that when we see you by sight, all tears, all sickness, all sorrow, all mourning and death, all of these things will be wiped away and love will be the chief ethic of the kingdom of God forever. We will love you the way we were meant to and we will love one another without failure. So until then, O oh God, would you walk us in love as we walk shoulder to shoulder in that same love until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.